Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. The Bible is incredibly rich, profound, meaningful, and life-changing. And we've discovered that when we can read it and put into action into our lives, what we find in the pages of Scripture, that it is incredibly useful for each one of us. Our first question today is about the jealousy of God. The Bible says in several places, God himself saying, I am a jealous God. And this has been criticized, misunderstood, and critics have used it to speak against God. They say, well, jealousy is petty. And therefore, would a God who is so grand and such a good God be so just petty by being jealous? Oprah Winfrey heard someone say that God was jealous and she decided then and there that she was not going to follow him anymore because if God was jealous of her, there was a problem, which is just, God doesn't say he was jealous of any person. He's not jealous of a person. He is a jealous God. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is there any jealousy that is not sin? We do know that there can be petty jealousy. We do know that jealousy can be sinful. And we do know that sin can come out of jealousy. However, that's not the case all the time. Sometimes jealousy is justified. When you are jealous for someone whom you love, that's some, that, that is giving attention to someone else or jealous to someone who you are married to, then God is jealous because we are in a covenant with him. Just like a marriage covenant, we're in a covenant with God. And when we say, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to love you, but then we serve, follow, and love another, God is jealous over us for that. And it's rightfully so that God should be jealous, just as we should be jealous over our spouses if they begin to give attention to someone else. It's not a difficult concept to try to understand. God is jealous for us, not of us. And we want to be faithful to him so that God does not have that jealousy. And um, with that jealousy, he talked about the Um, discipline and the judgment that he brought against Israel because God was jealous for them Uh, and because God's in a unique position as a judge to be able to judge and I at 14 years old made a commitment to Christ to live for him and when I turn to the world there is a jealousy that God has just like I would have a jealous and this is um, anthropomorphized to some degree because if my wife gives attention to someone else, I have a feeling of being jealous. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that's exactly what God has, but instead that God indeed is jealous because I've committed, I vowed that I would love him. And when I start giving attention to someone else or to something else, then there is a direct jealousy that comes from that. So if you have a follow-up question on our first question with um, why is God jealous, um, then we would love to have that. Good to see you guys here. If you are visiting with us, or if you're here on our Q&A for the very first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, the question could be about anything, the Bible, uh, prophecy, uh, apologetics, 
uh, nuances on scriptures, on what the Bible says. Um, the authority of scripture can be on anything. Just write the word question or Q in front of your question, and then write out your question, make sure it makes sense, and um, then put re any references in there that we can look up, because sometimes it really helps to be able to stop and look up the reference. Uh, sometimes we're able to even get the answer that we need from just the reference. When we just when we go to the reference and we begin to look at it, um, we saw that Paul said last week in in First Corinthians chapter seven that let him who is married act like he's not married. Then we went back and read it in context, and he said, "In this present distress, it is right." And then we listed several things, and for someone who is um, married, act like they're not married. It certainly didn't mean to be unfaithful. It meant that he had, give, had to give a lot of attention to the things of God. But the context helped us out with that so much, and that's the case um, that it is um, a, a lot of the times the context will help us to do it. So Psych Man got our first question today, and uh, Psych Man, good to see you. Segment says, the wrath of God is introduced in Revelation, um, is not introduced in Revelation until the sixth seal. Revelation 6.17, pre-wrath rapture. I get, but I have no idea why folks say it must occur pre-trib before Daniel 9.27. Thanks. Help, thanks. Okay, let me just read your question through one more time here. Make sure that I got a psych man, and I appreciate it. So you're saying because it appears in the sixth seal that you get the pre-wrath position. Um, is that what you're saying? The wrath of God is not introduced in Revelation chapter six seal, Revelation six seventeen. Pre-wrath rapture, I guess I get okay, but I have no idea why folks say it must occur pre-tribulation. Uh, before Daniel 9.27. Thank you. Let's take a look at Daniel 9.27, and then we're going to take a little bit of time uh, to break this down, that I think it's, it's really important to be able to do that, all right? So, uh, Daniel 9.27 talks about the, this is the, the peace treaty, right? So, let me go put this on the screen for you here. So, it says, um, then he, and this is after um, the abomination, desolation, um, the um, halfway through the tribulation period, right? Let's see, let's just go back, um, read it in context. Um, and after uh, the 62 weeks, so there was seven weeks and 62 weeks, which makes 69 weeks and 70 weeks are determined, and these are weeks of years. So this is 69 weeks or, 300, or 383 years. Um, it says that after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And for the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the prince who is to come is from the people who destroyed the sanctuary. That's why we believe that he's Roman. And the end shall be the flood, flood there, meaning a war. Okay? Um, and um, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Uh, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Who is this? The prince of the people who destroy the city. So this is the Antichrist. Um, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end of sacrifice um, and offering on the wings of an abomination. He shall be made one who makes desolate. So he's going to set the statue up in the middle of the temple uh, during that time. Now, one more passage I want us to look up, and this is this uh, passage out of Revelation, where we get to Revelation, what is it, 6, uh, 19? 
Let me just go to Revelation 6. I'm going to go to Revelation 6, um, verse, verse 1. And um, let's just take a look at this. Uh, we are going to read it all. We're just going to kind of look at it. Um, so he sees the Lamb open the first seal, and the conqueror rides out. Now, these are things that happen during the tribulation period. We could say they are characteristics of the tribulation period. It isn't like this is the start and the conqueror goes out and um, then we come to the second seal and the red horse rides forth, right? I heard living creatures saying, come and see. And another fire has red horse. These are characteristics of the tribulation period. This isn't time passing in the tribulation period. The third seal is, um, and I looked as the black horse, and uh, it's famine. So the characteristics of the tribulation period are it's a time of the Antichrist, it's a time of war, and it's a time of famine. And it's a time of death, which is the last seal that opens up. When I opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice come out, the loud voice, the pale horse comes out. So it's a time of death. All of these things are going to be happening during the tribulation period. We then get to the fifth seal. When you open the sixth seal, I saw altars. Of, um, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So now we have, we have the, another characteristic of the tribulation period is that there are martyrs. There are people that give their lives to Christ, and they cry out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, hope faithful and true, until you avenge the blood of the one who was dwell on the earth? Then the white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest um, a little while longer. Both number of the fellow servants are brought in. Okay, now, my point is this, that coming to the sixth seal, that's the first event. We have not had the, we haven't had the two witnesses, we haven't had the, the Antichrist come on the scene. Um, we haven't had even God beginning to bring judgment upon the earth. What we've got are the characteristics and the souls that are up in heaven. So the very first thing that we've got happening in the tribulation period is the cosmic disturbances. And I looked and I opened the sixth seal and behold, there was an, a great earthquake. The sun was black and sackcloth, the hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven. Uh, fell to the earth, and the fig tree dropped figs, uh, late figs when it was shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded like a scroll when it is upon, when it is opened up, and every mountain island moved out of its place. So this is like a great earthquake, a, a heavenquake, right? And the kings of the earth, the great and the rich, the commands, the mighty of every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains as said, mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of he who sits on the throne, the wrath of the lamb. So this is in the beginning of the tribulation period. The, now we're going to start seeing things unfold. We're going to see there's judgment against the earth first of all. And we, don't, we have a while before there's judgment against man of any kind. You could say that this great earthquake was a judgment against man, but it's really a judgment against the earth. The earth is the one that shakes. And then a third of the trees are going to be burnt up and, and, and so on and so forth. And we don't see anything happen to man. I believe it's until the, the bottomless pit is opened up and the scorpions come out, which is well into the tribulation period. This is the beginning of the tribulation period. So wrath starts from the very beginning. It doesn't start in the sixth. Um, remember, th this, is the, this is the beginning of it, chapter six. 
um, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you have the letters to the churches. 4 and 5, you have the heavenly scene. Chapter 6 is the beginning of the tribulation period, and wrath comes right out of the chute. Why? Because it is a day of God's wrath. Now, it does say a little bit later on that great wrath will come upon the earth. And the last three and a half years are great wrath, but all of it is the wrath of the Lamb. How could you say, even if you want to say that the conquering, and I do believe the conquering happens from the beginning to the end, the war happens from the beginning to the end, the famine happens from the beginning to the end, the death and, and, and grave happen from beginning to end. But seeing this clearly is the beginning of the tribulation period. And God said that it is a day of wrath, a day of indignation. That day of the Lord is the day of wrath and a day of indignation. So I don't get the pre-wrath position of saying that it's in chapter 6. Because chapter 6 is the beginning of the tribulation period. It's going to go from 6 until 18. So you've got all of this information about it, and it's at the very beginning of the tribulation period that you have the wrath, so I don't get it. Uh, first of all, the, re the, the, the strongest reason I believe that God is going to come for his church, catch them up in the air to meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation period is the any moment return of Christ. He says, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready. If the tribulation period's going on, if, if I've got it figured out to be mid-trib or post-trib or pre-wrath or, or, or the end, then you're going to know. The Bible says at a time we don't expect him, he comes. So you're trying to tell me that if you're seeing, if you're seeing the, the Antichrist, you're seeing war, you're seeing famine, and you're seeing death all over the earth, and then this great cosmic earthquake that that's going to come upon you unexpectedly, that you're going to be taken out right unexpectedly before those things happen in the middle of the tribulation period. No, you're going to be expecting it because you're going to realize you're in the tribulation period. Um, if I believe that Jesus could come back right now, and I know I'm not in the tribulation period, then I can't be mid or post-trib. I've got to be pre-trib. It's called the imminent return of Christ. He could come back at any moment. And he said, I'm coming back at a time that you do not expect it. So be ready. So you've always got to be ready. Uh, Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. He didn't say, when you see these things begin to happen, figure out who the Antichrist is. And if you're mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, then you're looking for the Antichrist. People will also say, well, this is a new idea. It wasn't around until Darby and then the Schofield Bible. That's just not true. There are all kinds of texts that talk about pre-tribulation um, uh, rapture, God catching his church up before the tribulation. Uh, Mary McDonald, her vision was not of a pre-wrath um, rapture. I mean, uh, I mean, excuse me, of a pre-trib rapture. It was completely different. You can go read it, go to Wikipedia, look it up. You can read it online. John Darby did popularize the pre-trib uh, pre position, but popularizing it and coming up with it are two different things. All the way back in the early church, they believed Jesus could come back at any moment. And Irenaeus, who was a descendant, who was a, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, spoke of God taking the church out before the wrath.
And so that cannot be the case. Um, there, are, there are many other arguments for the pre-tribulation period, uh, for, the pre, for, for him coming for his church before all of these things are going to happen. Um, one of them is Revelation, Revelation uh, 3.10. Which let me go ahead and get that up here for you. Revelation three ten, and um, Luke twenty one, where Jesus says, "But you, uh, but you watch and pray that you would be counted worthy. You watch and pray lest your hearts be laid down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life weighed down with that, and that they day come upon you unexpectedly." For it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the whole earth. But pray that you be counted worthy to escape and stand before the Son of Man. So I'm not praying to go through it. I'm praying to be able to escape and, and to stand before the Son of Man. In Revelation 3.10, it says, uh, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's the same lingo you find throughout the book of Revelation. God's testing those who dwell on the earth. We are not earth dwellers. We are passing through. And so people say, well, God's going to keep us through. This says keep from. But by the time you get to chapter 13, you've got the Antichrist giving uh, uh, control, complete authority over the saints. So if the, the bride, if, if, Christ, if the church is in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will have complete control over it. This promise could not come true. Another place for us to go to really help understand this, and let me go ahead and uh, I'll just do this while I go here. And I'll take more questions on this as well. Um, if you guys want to, we can make this whole Q&A um, about the gathering together of the saints. It cracks me up when people say there is no rapture. Uh, the Bible does say rapture, there is no rapture. What do you think 1 Thessalonians 4 says when it says those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and will forever be with the Lord? What do you th and, and he says there, I don't want you to be ignorant. People are ignorant of the very thing he said not to be ignorant about. That, and, and, and in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection there and those who are alive during the resurrection, this is all pre-trip to the voice of the, the trumpet, uh, it says we'll be changed. This is bold, I tell you a mystery. We're all going to be changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. And so this corruptible is going to put on incorruptible. This incorruptible, uh, this mortal is going to put on immortality. Let's go to another passage here, which is in John, um, which is in Luke 17. And um, I think that this is, I think that this is extremely helpful. Okay, right, yeah, here we go. All right, so um, so he says to his disciples, he has a conversation with the, the Pharisees about the kingdom of God, and then he says to his disciples, um, then this is uh, Luke 17, 22. Then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see them. And they will say to you, look here, or look there, do not go, go after them, or follow them. For as lightning flashes out of one part of heaven and shines to the other part of heaven, so also will the Son of Man be in his day. 
but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by the generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So they're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until God takes Noah, puts him in the ark, which has to be done because in order for God to be just, he can't pour his wrath out on the, the righteous who he's chosen to, to carry on. So he's got to put him away. But if you may take it to the end of the tribulation period or even the middle of the tribulation period, people are not going to be marrying, eating in marriage. Look at all these things they're going to be doing again as it was in the days of Noah. They will eat and drink, they will marry wives, they will be given in marriage until the day, right? So th these things are going to be put on hold. You're not going to be giving, sending out invitations after the cosmic destruction um, event or, or during these other things. And then um, it says the same thing about uh, yeah, it says the same thing about Lot. Likewise, it will also be the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained brimstone from heaven. On the day Lot went out, on the day Noah was taken into the ark. So these are him telling them that it's going to be at a time you don't expect it. You're going to be planting and reaping and sowing and planting for your future when suddenly he comes and takes them out and then sudden destruction comes and destroys them all. Even so it will be in the days when the Son of Man will be revealed. In that day, he who was on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. So when this tribulation period starts, he's talking to Jews now. You get out of here because the the persecution against the Jews is going to be the atrocity of the Antichrist. He goes, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks his life will lose it and whoever pursues it. I tell you that in the night there will be two men, one in bed, one will be taken and the other one left. That's the rapture. This is Luke 17. This isn't Luke Matthew 24. And this isn't the wicked being raptured out. It's clearly the righteous that he's coming for. Two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and another will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and another left. And the answer and said to him, where Lord? So he said, wherever the body is there, the eagle will be gathered together. There, there will be an obvious answer uh, to that. All right. So let me get over here. Let me go back to my Bible. Um, there are many other arguments for the pre-tribulation position that come out of Scripture. And I'll use a Charles Swindoll statement here. I am so pre-trib, I don't eat post-Osties. I just, <laughs> the, the Bible so clearly teaches to be ready and that Jesus is going to come back for his saints before the tribulation period um, and that Jesus prayed that we would be counted worthy to escape all of these things and stand before the Son of Man. So hopefully that's helpful, Psych Man. As I said, I'm willing to take um, I'm willing to take follow-ups on this because uh, I would really like us to have clarity on here that um, that these arguments against God coming for His church and saying I'm going to protect you from the hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth that somehow God's not doing that. All right. So Renee Cruz says hi, Renee. Good to see you. Uh, is it okay for Christians to get involved with protest against injustice. Uh, sure. I don't see any reason why they can't. Um, I think 
is there any reason Christians shouldn't vote? Is there any reason that Christians shouldn't try to protect the unborn? Is there any reason why Christians uh, shouldn't try to make something more fair for someone else? It's not our highest call, Renee. The, to the world, they get that as their highest call. But, and, and let's use injustice as a real injustice because a lot of times, you know, what do they mean by injustice when they say injustice? A lot of times what they would say would be injustice, we would not. So I'm talking about a real injustice. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about someone taking the life of a baby in the womb. That's injustice. Yeah, I could get involved in a protest against that. Save the life of the innocent. Yeah, I could. Let's, um, let's say that, that, uh, people that used to be in slavery are not being treated fairly now or justly or like other people. Then I could get involved in that. Yeah. I'm not talking about perceived. I'm talking about real. I could get involved in it and there's no reason why we shouldn't. Uh, the, um, I, uh, the one I don't like is boycotting. And I'll tell you why I don't like boycotting it. And I'm not that boycotting can't be effective because it's been effective here recently. Uh, as a Christian, I don't want an organization to think I'm trying to hurt them. I would like to persuade them in another way than try to hurt them financially. And I think it's a bad look for the church that we're supposed to be loving people, trying to get them into heaven for us to be boycotting something. So I just don't sign boycotts for that reason. All right. So I hope, Renee, that that is helpful. Um, yeah, we can be involved in protest against something that is truly in, unjust. Um, we can be political. We can vote. Um, we can get involved on, on political situations, but it's not our highest call. The highest call is God. And to me, when churches begin to use their platform to vote in politicians, to me, that's a violation of it. That's a violation of what God's given you the platform for. The platform is, is so that you can lift Christ up, see people get saved, turn to the Word of God, learn how to live better, make disciples of all nations, teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we live in a world, in a country, and where we live in a country, in a world, or if we live in a country, that allows us to get involved. You know, try protest testing in China, see what happens. Try protesting in Myanmar, or some of these other places, and see what happens. Um, the fact that we live in a country that allows us to be able to protest, it seems now doesn't even, even need to be peaceful anymore. This allows them to protest. It should be peaceful. That's the idea, is we have a right to peaceful protest. And if we have it, let's take advantage of it for the, for the sake of rescuing someone who may be that an injustice is taking place. Um, sex trafficking is another area that I think that we could very easily protest. And um, because of, of the, the people that are being hurt with it. It's interesting that these are not the areas that people want to seem to protest on. All right. So we have a question from Paul. Paul says, um, 
how did you, uh, how did the Urim work? <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew. Was it like a walkie-talkie with God? Could they actually hear his voice? No, I don't think they could actually hear his voice. Um, I think it was like casting lots. It was like, you know, get a, you're going to get a black stone or a white stone. Uh, we, don't, we don't know how it worked. We have no idea. What we do know is that God gave it to them so that under that theocracy, God could give them direction if they needed it. They could go to the priest and they could get a firm direction, do this or don't do this. So God gave them the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't have anything like the Urim and the Thummim today because we walk with God, because we know him, because we interact with him, because we have his word for his will. There are a lot of things, you know, when we talk about Paul, um, and we talk about the Old Testament, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that God did that weren't ideal, but they were concessions to the people. I think of a couple of concessions God made, and this is in the law. He didn't want them to have a king, but he let them have one. He didn't want them to divorce, but he allowed them to divorce because of the hardness of their heart. And there are other concessions that are like that. And had they really been able just to, to see God and do what the scripture said, I don't know that they would have needed an Urim and a Thummim. And I don't think that we need that to know that um, one, we need that today. Because when I'm trying to figure out God's will, I could be talking about, am I going to live in Tucson or Albuquerque? I'm going to pray and I'm going to make a decision. But the Bible doesn't tell me which city I should move to. Instead, the Bible tells me how I'm supposed to live in that city. So that no matter what city I'm in, I can live in the will of God. And um, this, the, the bullseye idea of, you know, I've, I've got one person to marry, I've got one car to drive, I've got one job to get, I've got one, you know, is just not biblical. We're told how to live, why we drive a car, why we do what we do. Um, but there's certain things that I just don't know that we'll ever know. And the Urim and the Thummim is definitely one of those things that we're just going to have to be satisfied with going, I don't know. And I don't know is, is a fine answer um, when we, when it's something like this. We just have no idea how it really worked. All right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Uh, so, let's see. Uh, we have another question from Sharon. Sharon says, uh, God's, God's punishment to Lucifer was to grovel on his belly. Is Satan still crawling on his belly? Um, thanks, Sharon. I appreciate that. Um, so, the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field. So the serpent was a beast of the field. Uh, some believe a, a Sarah, uh, there's a couple of Hebrew words for serpent. One of them is Natash and one of them is Seraph. So Natash is the typical word for a snake and Seraph is a poisonous snake. So before the throne are seraphim and you would call it a burning one because when they bite their poisonous bite they, they, are, they are poisonous. So seraphim are called burning ones. Many theologians believe that 
a seraphim is a serpent-like creature and that Satan was a seraphim. Now again, I don't know where I stand on all of this. Um, maybe I just don't have enough information. I, I, I feel like I don't have enough information to go along with all of those things. We see the cherubim and they have what looks like an ox, a human, an eagle, um, and um, I can't remember the other, I can't remember the other animal. And then you have the seraphim, the burning ones, that would be like the, a poisonous snake. Um, and there are a few references that we could look up to be able to take a look at that. So, Satan possessed a creature that was made. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field. So, it was a beast of the field that he possessed. And because he was possessed, he went onto his belly. Now, that's my understanding that Satan was not made to grovel, but the serpent was made, made uh, thrown onto its belly, maybe as a symbol of God's judgment against Satan. So, I don't think that Lucifer's crawling around on his belly today, um, Sharon. Um, I think that that was, again, to the serpent. And one of the descendants of the serpent is going to bruise the heel but have his head crushed. And that is the prophecy that's given around that same time. Uh, and, of course, we know that that is Jesus. And it's a descendant. And Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, the Pharisees, you are the, the of your father, the devil. So we're talking about spiritual descendants here. And the seed of the woman being Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent, which would be the, the actual power behind the serpent. Okay? So, um, maybe it's just too much of a um, rigid reading of that, that would put Lucifer on his belly, groveling on his belly. Also, the, uh, sharing the name Lucifer comes from Isaiah 14, 14, where God is mocking Satan for wanting to exalt his throne above the throne of God and be one of the stars of heaven, or be above the stars of heaven, be the morning star, which we know that Jesus is the morning star. So, Lucifer in Latin is morning star. And God says in Isaiah 7, 14, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, O son of the morning. And that's why when you get to, um, when you get to Isaiah 14 and you look at a few different uh versions, they will not use the word Lucifer. That was a King James thing, and it's the name for Venus. So, Lucifer has become known as his name, but that's not his name. He is Satan. He is um, the serpent of old. He is the dragon of the book of Revelation. And I just want to show you this here. Uh, so, this is, this is Isaiah 14. Um, and, and, and now we're talking, this is to the king of Babylon, but it's obviously the power behind Babylon. And here's what Satan said when he fell. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Oh, it's uh, verse 12. Um, yeah, no, I want actually. Yeah, there it is. Okay. How you have fallen uh, from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will exalt him above the stars of God. So how you fallen from heaven, O morning star. 
it's a mocking kind of a thing. So when you go to, I'm just going to go ahead and switch it while you're watching here. When you go to NASB, here's how they translate it. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, son of the dawn. So NASB is the best study Bible that there is to get the, the best idea for the original language. And so here he's called the star of the morning, which is Venus. It's the last, it's the first, it's the last star that shines in the morning. It's called the morning star. So what he's doing is mocking him. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. You wanted to be the brightest thing in heaven, and now you've fallen from heaven. And so not only does he not grovel, but his name is not uh, Lucifer. We don't know what his name is. Uh, we know what he's called, father of lies, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, the Satan, um, the serpent of old, those kind of things. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Sharon. I appreciate that. Um, Jari has a question. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, is the motive that counts, is the motive, is the motive that counts not the action? Okay, I'm going to read this right. Is it the motive that counts and not the action? For example, lying Rahab lied to uh, protect the spies. Abraham, um, Ananias, and Sapphira lied to protect themselves. Is it a motive that determines the sin? Um... <clears throat> Let me think about that, Jari. Uh, let's just even boil this down. Is it ever okay to lie? I, th I think that's the best way to take a look at this. We'll get back to motive in a moment. Um, so last week, we went to a birthday party for someone who attends our church who turned 90 years old. And they did a lot of lying to be able to get her sisters from another state, to be able to get people there. They had asked me and my wife to attend just to make it special for her. And we all went into a room and we hid and we giggled and we laughed. And then, you know, she was so surprised when she showed up and it was really all worth it. Was it okay to lie to her that they were gonna go meet someone else when she was going to a surprise party? Yes, it's okay. And what is the motive behind that? The motive behind it is, we want to bless her. We want her to be surprised. And so that's the motive behind it. Um, the midwives lied when they said the Egyptian women are weaker than the Hebrew women. The Hebrew women just give birth. And we aren't there to be able to kill the male babies. And God commended them for it. So what was their motive to save the male babies? Um, Rahab lied. They're not here. She, they'd hidden themselves. They're not here. And God honored her for it. She's, she's mentioned in, in the New Testament in the, as one of the descendants of Jesus. A Canaanite woman who was a harlot. And she lied. And by lying, she did an action that allowed her to be able to, to be saved. Her and her family. So, what was her motive behind that? That she wanted to follow the one true and the living God. And so she told a lie. Now, there's where it becomes difficult. Remember, the, the Ten Commandments don't say, thou shalt not lie. It says, thou shalt not bear false witness, which is much worse than lying. It's lying about a person. 
So if I lie about a person and I bear false witness against them, that's saying something negative, slanderous towards a person, that's really wicked. Now the Bible does say not to lie and it does say to be truthful and that's the way we should live our lives, being truthful and not lying. But every once in a while, there is, is something that could come up that's going to need some finesse to be involved in it. Um, so we don't want to live by, uh, we don't want to, we don't want a rule based life. We want to be, we want to live by love. We want love to be that which drives us. And so sometimes love may cause you to protect someone with a lie or to bless someone with a lie. And there's nothing wrong with that. All right. Um, is it the motive behind it that matters? Well, yeah, if I'm lying to hurt you, yes, bad. If I'm lying to get something for myself, bad. If I'm lying to, you know, uh, to, I don't know, steal something, bad, right? So if I'm lying to make myself look better, bad. So yes, I would say motives come into play. But I think it's, it's more than that. It's, is my lie, in, in my lie, is it out of love or is it out of selfishness and selfish ambition or trying to hurt someone or trying to tear someone down what's that what what's going on behind the lie so it yes it is that everything that we do should be out of love and sometimes you're going to tell a lie because of love that's the world we live in the world we live in is nuanced and and the problem with fundamentalism I'm not talking about being a fundamental Christian, I'm talking about fundamentalism, is that they can't, they, they, they just don't do nuances well. And there's a lot of nuances in the world that we live in and, and a lot of nuanced situations to where you could look at one situation and go, this is right in this situation, another situation, this is wrong in this situation. It was right for Rahab to lie in that situation. It would be wrong in most situations to lie. All right, so thank you, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. Let's see, we have a question here from Kay Fox. Good to see you, Kay. Kay says, um, I was told that writing the world influence allows us to redeem the times because the days are evil. That we don't have much time left. Isn't God the redeemer of the time? Can you explain? Okay, I was told that... Um, Ridding of the world influences, allows us riding the world. Oh, gotta, I got to read the questions right, right? I was told that um, ridding the world's influences allows us to redeem the time. So there's a passage in the Bible, okay, that says to redeem the time because the days are short. So the idea of redeeming is to buy back. So buy back the time because the days are short. Uh, Paul's talking about doing things that for the kingdom of God, doing things out of love, doing things for people, doing things for other believers, um, redeeming the time because the days are short. So I can I can redeem my time. I can buy it back. I can go. I'm going to listen to this book while I'm driving tonight, and that's redeeming the time. I'm purchasing it back. Uh, I'm going to. I'm going to redeem the time in the morning when I get up to read and pray. And as I do that, I'm redeeming the time. 
and, and working on my relationship and getting things right with God for the day, getting things ready as I start off the day with those things. So, no, I, we are told to redeem the time. Um, and God can certainly redeem time. Yeah, but we're told to redeem it because time is short. Now, Paul may have been met, time is short, he did mean, time is short, Jesus is coming back soon, so redeem the time. Um, but time is short anyway. Life, James said, is like a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And so we want to live our lives for God and we want to redeem the time. Redeeming the time would be not wasting a lot of time. Now, it's okay to have downtime and we need it. God's created us where we need a day of rest. We need downtime. But we also don't want to be, you know, live a life of perdition, a life of waste. We want to, we want to live for Him and we don't want to get caught up in um, wasting the, the time that we have. All right, okay, so hopefully that answers that question. Uh, we have a question from Long Story. Long Story says, 1 Corinthians 11, regarding head coverings. Uh, is an uncovered woman's head in prayer, worship, in public a dishonor to her? Yet we have no such customs, neither do the churches of God. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, 16. Um, Mike Winger did a six-hour video on head coverings in his Women in Ministry series. Six hours. And I listened, I, I drove and listened to it, but I listened to all six hours of it. And this statement, yet we have no such customs, is interpreted by different people in different ways. Nor do the churches of God. Um, to say both ways, we have no such custom, meaning we don't have any such custom that you can go with your head uncovered, or we don't have any such custom that your head can be covered. So people will use it to be able to say what they're going to say. Um, I do believe that there is a cultural aspect to it. Uh, it does say in that passage because of the angels. So head coverings in their day were a sign of authority to the husband. And the Bible is serious about the authority aspect. Our authority to Christ, our authority to the Christ, our authority, government, our authority, um, the church, our authority, the husband, our authority, about taking that, that role proper, and that there were women who were flaunting that they were not under their husband's authority, and so they weren't wearing the traditional head covers. So what does this mean today? What, what about a woman who comes to me, or I see a woman in church and she's wearing her, she has her head hair covered all the time. She's got her head covered all the time. She's got head coverings on. I don't say anything to her. I look at this passage and I think this is a passage where you can read this and you can go, hey, if your conscience says you should hair, cover your hair, then cover your hair. If you can look at it and go, this seems to be cultural, we certainly don't have any customs today. Whatever their customs were in that day that he was talking about, we don't have any customs today, neither are the churches of God. And that's not how we see authority. And maybe this whole concept needs to be challenged of real leadership where a husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church and dies for her, and real respect from the woman to her husband, because the Bible says wives respect your husbands. So maybe this maybe we are kind of like the Corinthians 
and that our culture battles against it and their culture was beginning to battle against it and so um, God has put these authorities into a position now a good authority fellas is going to a good leader is going to take the best qualities of people around them and use them to be able to do the best job you could do if your wife is better with finances then let her handle the finances if your wife is better um, with uh, spelling, like, like my wife, writing, then let her do those things. Because that's, that's what a good leader does. A good leader takes the strengths of people that are around them. And if you think that saying, I'm in charge and I get to do what I, I want without taking input in, without considering what's best for the family, then you really don't understand biblical leadership at all. All right. So that's what the head covering thing was about. Um, it was about authority. And um, Paul's upset when he writes it. I mean, he goes, he gets to the point where he says, let, if a woman you know, is going to be disrespectful in this way, let's shave her hair all the way off. He's talking about the glory of a woman's hair being her glory. The men just can't grow hair like women. Some men can. We see that. And it's, it's talking about being feminine um, when it says that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. All right, so you continue on, a uh, long story. Um, can you help me understand what this passage instructs? You have probably answered this a million times, but I haven't heard it yet, thanks. All right, yeah. So, yeah, I have, I've answered it a lot. And um, I was hoping to get some clarity, and I really like what Mike Winger says at the end of his video, which is, this is a matter of conscience. If you really feel like you need to cover, it would be sin for you not to. And if you feel like you are free, you are free. If the culture of the church that you're in is covering heads and you come in and flaunt against the culture, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe that's not really caring for the brethren. Okay, so there needs to be nuance is the word of the day. We need to be nuanced in what we, what we believe, uh, how we're living, um, those kind of things. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from B. Smith about the book of Enoch. Uh, why is the book of Enoch and other books missing from the Bible? All right, thank you, B. I appreciate that. Um, so, I don't know what other books you're talking about. Enoch was not accepted in the Jewish canon. So, the Jewish canon was already established and accepted, and the New Testament calls them Scripture. Jesus calls them Scripture. Jesus quoted from many of them calling them scripture. The book of Enoch was never called scripture. If you ever, have you ever read the book of Enoch? It's a little weird, strange, okay? Um, I, it goes against certain aspects of scripture. So the book of Enoch was never part of the Jewish scripture. And when the early church got saved, they were, they were Jews that got saved, the first ones. And the scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures which Jesus fulfilled, which was not the book of Enoch. The New Testament, was put together fairly quickly after the first century. I think, I can't remember what year you get to where you find all 27 books of the New Testament mentioned, but it's not long after that. And Dan Brown tried to popularize that the, the church at Nicaea chose to put in the 27 books of the New Testament, but it's wrong. It was, it was received and accepted long before the Council of Nicaea that these books should be in there. It wasn't that many books were never debated because some debated the book of James. Um, 
I'm trying to think of Martin. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. And I think there's one other book. Um, another one that's been debated is 3 John, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Was debated as to whether or not it was it was uh, ever supposed to be in the canon of Scripture. But we've seen all 27 of these books in the New Testament very quickly. And so we don't have the Apocrypha books that the Catholic Church has, that the Orthodox Church has, uh, <clears throat> because they were not part of the original scripture. And you, it can lead you down into weird kind of um, certain weird beliefs if you start to follow after them. All right, B, hopefully that's helpful. If you have any more questions, B, you can ask a follow-up either today or at another time as well. All right? So, um, John says, question, have you read the Left Behind series? A long time ago. I mean, a long time ago. Uh, Nicholas Carpathia was the Antichrist. If so, what are your thoughts? I'm a new believer. Just curious for your thoughts. Yeah, good. it's a good read. Yeah, it is. Uh, I would have made certain decisions different than Tim LaHaye did, but it's a good read, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's basically biblically sound, and um, I think that you would uh, really enjoy the book. So, Left Behind series, uh, it's, um, it's good, and maybe gets us into the right mindset that we're living in the last days, um, not only because we're living in a church age, which is the last age, but we're living in the last days because many of the things the Bible talks about, the last days being like uh, they are today, that is exactly what we're seeing uh, today, and, um, and we're living in them. So, um, um, why there will be over three years. Okay, I'm not sure what your question is. Am I, do I need to look? Um, why? Oh, you're, you're probably just interacting here on the, uh, on the thread. Why the book of Enoch is not in the scriptures. All right, all right. Uh, so, uh, we're coming near the end of our time together today. So, if you have a question, go ahead and write question out. Write the question behind it and uh, we will be able to uh, get your question and answer it. Uh, just a couple of things while I'm looking for another question here. We are, we're in the middle of a silent drive. Uh, Calvary Tucson has a radio station called Reach Radio. We have a lot of good, solid teachers that are on there. David Jeremiah, um, Charles Swindoll, uh, Jack Graham, uh, Greg Laurie, so many good, solid teachers. Our, our goal was to cover the city of Tucson with the, with the Word of God so the people who aren't Christians could turn on their radio and hear God's Word. Uh, we've got an HD station, 96.1, then you navigate to HD4, and that's Reach Radio. Uh, we've got an app, which you can get and listen to Reach Radio. Uh, we have 106.7, which is our FM, and 690, which is our AM. And we're in the middle of a silent drive, which means that we just kind of make announcements for the silent drive. And we don't do a lot of talking and trying to get people fired up to, to give and um, ask people to partner together with us. So if you'd like to partner together, um, you can go to reach, I think it's reachradiotucson.com. And um, there you can make a one-time donation or you can make a recurring donation and um, catch that vision with us as we are wanting to reach the city of Tucson. We wanted to get the gospel being preached outside of our walls and felt like a lot of the radio that was out there was not good and solid. And so we wanted to get more of it. And so we did that. 
So we have another question from Sharon here. Sharon says, um, uh, question, then what about the woman that shaves her head and has a volunteer position, church position in church? Is that a shame and sin? Um, according to what the scriptures say, if the woman is looking masculine, then that's the shame or sin. If the man is looking feminine, that's the shame or sin. Now, we're living in the day, right? We're living in the day where transgenderism has skyrocketed, gone from a very small percentage to a very large percentage, and has become the poster child for a whole political party. And all we know is that we want to walk in love. And if someone is in sin, those of you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness and restore such a one. Consider in yourself, lest you also stumble. So, we've we got to be careful that we do not just run over people. Uh, we, we are culturally living in a day when it's acceptable for a, a woman to have shorter hair. And so, to say that she's not looking feminine just because she has shorter hair would be wrong. All right, Sharon, hopefully that's helpful. Remember, everything that we have, we want to come out of, we want to come out of love. All right. Um, Jari has a question. Jari says, worms, uh, worms, legless lizards, some extinct animals, snakes, etc., crawl on their belly, in your opinion. What do you think of it? Was Satan uh, possession of the creature just a thought? Yeah, um, my, my, my feeling, and I'm, I'm talking kind of um, out of my ear here. That's the right phrase to use. Uh, because I haven't really poured into it to go, what do I believe about this snake? Was it a possessed snake? Was it a seraphim? Was it was Lucifer a seraphim and they're in those forms? Uh, I've got to think, just taking it by face value, beast of the field, that it was a possession of one of the beasts of the field that was very cunning and able to communicate with that. All right, so we have one more question here um, by, is it Rom uh, Romaine? So it says, question, do you believe obeying the Ten Commandments are required commandments for God to be obeyed today? Thank you, Romaine. I appreciate that question. No, I do not. I think it's the, it's the law, and it's under the law, and we are no longer under the law. Galatians makes that very clear, and that if we could be saved by the law, then Christ died in vain, Galatians says. So we're not under the law. You say, well, well, what says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness. Are you saying those are okay? Obviously not. Because if I walk in love, the Bible says if I love God and love people, my neighbor as myself, that I fulfill all of the law and the prophets. So I'm not going back to some legalistic list and ignoring love. If I ignore in love, if I'm, I'm going to walk in love, then I'm not going to, if I'm going to love God, I'm not going to be a God before him. If I love God, I'm not going to take his name in vain. 
if I love you, then I'm not going to covet what's yours. I'm going to be blessed when, when you've got something that I might want. I might look and go, wow, that's really great. I'm glad that he's got that. So walking in love is the, the, is the complete way to go. So when people ask me, do you believe you have to keep the Ten Commandments today? No, I do not. I believe that we are no longer under the law, that the Ten Commandments were given, that were completely under the law, and um, that we, I don't think they're, I don't think they're necessarily bad. I even think the Sabbath rest, which when you go down to the details of the Sabbath, there's, there's very few people keeping it today. You might go to the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem that go overboard and more than keep the, the Sabbath. Other than that, you don't find many people who keep it. We're talking about Saturday. We're talking about as it was written in the Old Testament, not traveling, doing no work, um, those, those kind of things. Um, Christ is our Sabbath. He fulfilled every aspect of the law. It was completed in him. And so that's why we don't keep the Ten Commandments today. All right. So thank you. Um, as always, be back here again on Wednesday, Lord willing. And we will be taking uh, uh, questions and follow-up questions, maybe from some of them that we talked about today, if you guys see it. It's good to see all you guys here. Really appreciate you. Love you. Um, stay close to Christ. Um, cultivate your walk with him. Spend some time in the morning seeking him. Spend some time in his word, reading it. Uh, maybe be reading a book that on your, on your faith that will help you in your faith, that can strengthen you. I'm reading the book Tactics right now. I shouldn't say reading. I'm listening while I'm driving to the book Tactics right now by uh, Greg Kokel, which is a very good book. Um, recently, I've read another gospel by Elisa Childers. Um, I've read a couple of books on Revelation, Tim LaHaye's book on Revelation. Um, so just, you know, um, do those things that edify you spiritually, that are going to help you be ahead of the game so that you just aren't all of a sudden, you know, temptation doesn't come out of the blue. Remember, Jesus told Peter, pray lest you enter into temptation. So walk in the Spirit, delight yourself in the Lord, seek Him daily in the morning. Let it be one of the first things that you do, I would say. Well, maybe even the last thing you do before you go to bed and um, and pray. Seek God for the things in your life that you really care about um, because these are what we as Christians are supposed to be doing and believing that God's going to move when we do those things. All right? So I am out. God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you uh, in about an hour. We have a service. Uh, Acts chapter 5. A lot of good stuff there. We'll be talking about the miracles of Jesus and the continued miracles of the apostles. Why did God give them? Why doesn't God do those kind of miracles today? So we'll be talking about that in our study in about an hour or so, all right? God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.